Welcome to the Dr. Bub's Performance Podcast, giving you the latest evidence-based research and cutting-edge insights for elite mental and physical performance. He's connecting you directly with the world's leading experts and coaches. Here's your host, Dr. Bubs. Hey everyone, welcome back to season three of the Dr. Bubs Performance Nutrition Podcast, where as always you'll find evidence-based insights from world-leading experts to take your game to the next level. A happy belated Thanksgiving in the USA. I hope you are sitting down to a festive meal this weekend with friends, with family, enjoying some quality time, and perhaps like myself, enjoying a big win by the Buffalo Bills on Thanksgiving football, so thanks a lot for that. And of course, the holidays are always highly charged as well with both positive and negative emotions. So I thought a very appropriate time to be talking today with expert Curriculum Director at Precision Nutrition, Krista Scott-Dixon, PhD, whose tremendous expertise in both nutrition and behavior change provides some great insight in how we can upskill our own nutrition practice, or if you work with clients or athletes, how to navigate many of these challenges when dealing with another person, and of course, all the emotions and complexities that that brings. In this episode, Krista shares her insights on her diverse knowledge background and how that's influenced her today, whether you should focus on a client's strengths or weaknesses, helping clients bring attention to the stress patterns in their life. I also talk with Krista about children. They're not just many adults, how we need to coach them differently from a neuroscience standpoint. We'll also dive into male coaches and female athletes the quandary of how and when to talk about body composition for competition. And of course, Crystal also provides some solutions for navigating today's complex, hypercaloric, modern food environment in terms of achieving your weight loss goals. Awesome. You can find the links and the podcast summary in the show notes at drbubs.com forward slash podcast forward slash Krista. If you're interested in more on this topic, then you can circle back as well to Season 3, Episode 34, with Dr. Tara Swart on neuroscience, brain agility, and unlocking the source, a fantastic episode there. Or you can go all the way back to Season 1, Episode 43, with Dr. Andy Galpin talking about how to get unplugged and evolving from technology. Awesome, this episode is sponsored by my new book, Peak, the new science of athletic performance that is revolutionizing sports. Dr. Greg Wells, human performance expert and best-selling author of The Focus Effect, says, Peak is an essential read for anyone looking to reach their potential. Dr. Bubbs has synthesized the research and practices that you can use to amplify your health and performance as an athlete. You can check out all the expert blurbs at athleteevolution.org. That's athleteevolution.org. And please share some feedback. Go to Instagram, Twitter, Facebook at Dr. Bubs. Use the hashtag GoPeak and give us some feedback, ask questions. Always greatly appreciated. All right, let's do this. Season three, episode 37 with Dr. Krista Scott Dixon. Enjoy. Krista, thanks so much for taking the time today. Thank you so much for having me. Fantastic. Well, maybe you can kick things off here by telling listeners a little bit more about your background and your journey to working at Precision Nutrition. Yeah, well, uh, my background is actually in a completely different area than what Precision Nutrition does, although in some ways not quite. (laughs) Um, 
I, I had a little, bit of a, a little bit of a circuitous path to, uh, to working at Precision Nutrition. My current role there is director of curriculum. So all the curriculum that we create, whether that's for coaching clients or certifying nutrition coaches, somehow goes through me. So whether that's writing the textbook, developing educational materials, anything like that, that goes through me. And that kind of builds on my background as a former university professor, but none of my degrees were in the area of health and fitness. Um, it was a side thing that I did once I realized in grad school that I was getting super unhealthy <laughs> on the chicken wings and beer diet <laughs> and sitting on my butt for hours a day that in front of a computer. Right? It totally happens. It's definitely a thing. I don't think there's anyone in the world that grad, you know, grad school has made healthier (laughs) (laughs) increasing Um, resiliency by a different way yeah totally as you confront your demons of despair and so forth um but uh yeah so i mean you know i I had these degrees in all kinds of other areas my undergrad for example was in fine arts um but i had this health and fitness thing going on the side and i also discovered uh, that health and fitness was a really good way to pay the bills because being a personal trainer uh, was much better paying than being a graduate research assistant. So I used the university library to kind of self-educate and almost gave myself like another undergrad in in this area. And I was sneaking into classes, sneaking into lectures. I mean, when you work on a university Some campus, of the benefits, you can just, right? yeah, you can just walk right into a class <laughs> and they let you learn. So um, yeah, so, you know, and then at some point I decided that academia wasn't for me. And I had known the folks who ran Precision Nutrition. I said, look, you know, I'm unemployed. And they said, great. You know, you have a research background, you have teaching, uh, why don't you come work for us? So that's sort of how I ended up here. And I really feel like every every six months my job changes, which is kind of cool. So I never know what's coming, but, uh, you know, I've always seemed to use the skills that I've built. So, um, you know, the fine arts degree, for example, well, I can bring that right into things like data display or, you know, how do we show information mm-hmm. in a way that is understandable and tells a story for people. So it's funny, like nothing you learn is really ever useless. It's amazing where you do uh, find yourself using it. Yeah, it's amazing how it applies back. And as you mentioned, I mean, especially today with showing people how information seems to be the order of the day with, uh, you know, infographics and the way that we display information. Uh, So it is amazing how some of these things come full circle. And obviously with your work at Precision Nutrition, I mean, you guys have coached hundreds of thousands of, of clients. And so if we start this discussion from a real... 30,000 foot view, I think one of the misnomers often around nutrition is that people just, you know, don't know what to eat. If only we could educate them on picking the right things and that would solve all their problems. But, you know, you guys have found some different reasons why people are actually not able to, uh, to maintain some of that success. Could you share some of those with us? Yeah. And I think, I mean, I like that you said the 30,000 foot view, you know, if we, if we look at humanity as a species, I think there are some things that unite us, even though there are lots of differences among us. But one of them is that we're incredibly affected by what's around us, our environment, whether that's our social environment, the people around us, the physical environment, whatever. And so in 2019, in industrialized countries, we live in an environment that is food rich. Uh, The food that is available to us is heavily processed, nutrient poor, Uh, You know, we're working longer hours, uh, we're juggling all kinds of demands, family, commuting, travel, whatever. Um, And so the reality is that that most of us are just not really set up to be successful in eating well and making wise food choices. You know, we're rushed, we're busy, 
a lot of us are feeling a lot of distress for various reasons. Um, you know, we're, we're coping in all kinds of ways. So sure. I think people like to like to assume that coping. totally we're just barely holding on, kind of, right? <laughs> um, so, I mean, I think for me, that's kind of piece number one is that, you know, people are really grappling with environmental conditions that almost in no way support wise and thoughtful food choices or the practice of mindful eating. Um, and then the other thing, of course, is this stress piece, which is that food is a very effective coping mechanism, whether that's eating more or controlling your food or, you know, focusing on some aspect of the food that you think is going to bring certainty to your life or whatever, mm -hmm. like going on a certain a, a diet or whatever. Um, and so, you know, people are attempting to relieve that stress or that pressure through food or eating or restricting food or whatever. So, you know, when we ask our clients, like, what's your biggest challenge? Emotional eating is a huge one. Cravings, uh, feeling rushed and busy, no time to prep meals. It's that kind of stuff. So it's really not like, oh, I didn't know that protein was a thing, or I didn't know that spinach was good. Like, I think mm -hmm. there would probably be a general consensus, at least in the ballpark, of what foods were healthy and what foods were not. Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's so true that you know, we're sort of swimming upstream, aren't we, in a sense of trying to make good food decisions because if we just go with the flow and let the current take us downstream, it's, it heads in that direction that you mentioned, which is, yeah, I mean, ultra-processed food, hyper-palatable, you know, nutrient-poor, caloric-dense. So it's like, wait a minute, this is, this is tricky here. And as you mentioned with the emotional side of things, I actually had uh, Dr. Tara Swart on, who's a neuroscientist talking, you know, about how all of our thoughts actually are passing through the limbic system before they get to the cortex. So ultimately everything has this emotional um, slant to it, all our decisions that we're making. And so obviously, just as you mentioned, I mean, this emotional eating piece is, is, is massive. And so when we talk about clients' strengths and weaknesses, or even as practitioners, whether you're a, a trainer, a nutritionist, doctor, strengths and weaknesses, you know, how does framing that work when you're working with a client in terms of even using those terms you know, how do we navigate some of the things that our clients are doing well to propel that versus, you know, or is it better off to start working on some of those quote unquote weaknesses of that client? Yeah, I mean, I'd make the argument that most people do not find it motivating or empowering to work on their quote unquote weaknesses. Now, they may find it helpful to work on what we might call limiting factors. Mm -hmm. So for example, if you are limited by your ability to prepare food or to cook food, then yeah, maybe working on your cooking skills or showing you some streamlined meal prep ideas might help you. But I think in general in our health and fitness industry, we tend to focus a lot on people's quote unquote weaknesses, <laughs> flaws, sure. mistakes, whatever. Um, and that's incredibly disempowering. Like there is that 1% client who's like, yeah, you know, like they, they get fired up by criticism and pressure yeah. and stress and they, and they love Ex football player. <laughs> totally right. Ex-military, like there's yeah. that kind of person, but, but most other people are not empowered or motivated by that. And so like you can imagine, let's say you walk into the gym for the first time, or, you know, it's your first consultation with a nutrition coach. Do you want your coach or trainer to point out the 150 things that you do wrong in a day? <laughs> or do you want them to say, listen, here's what you're already doing well. Here are the assets that you're bringing to the table, some of the advantages that you have that you might not even realize. So, for example, mm -hmm. let's say you're a busy professional. Well, busy professionals don't have time, but they generally have money. 
And money solves a lot of problems. <laughs> so, sure. you know, is there a way that we can use money to solve the problem of not having a lot of time? And generally there is. Or, uh, hey, listen, you're a, a busy uh, working parent. Well, probably that means on some level you have to have a degree of organization. So how can we take that and use it in the service of these goals? Um, people are often so amazed to realize that all of the strengths that they have in their professional lives or their personal lives can be completely ported over to improving your health and fitness. And it's funny that they just never think of it. They're like, oh gosh, yeah, I, I use a planner at work. Why couldn't I use a planner for my nutrition decisions? So, I mean, like yeah. sometimes just pointing that out is <laughs> it's like a light bulb for people. They just never thought of it because there's so much in this, in this paradigm of like disempowerment and demotivation and I suck and I'm a failure and I'm lazy and that kind of stuff. Um, and another way to go at it is also to look at what is the explanatory paradigm that people are using? What is the story that they're telling themselves about what is happening here, right? So if your story is, well, I'm a failure and I'm weak, well, where do you go with that? Like, how do you fix that, right? Yeah, that's, you, a, you can't. that's a tall mountain Whereas, to climb. <laughs> totally, right? Like, I've, I've just given up right now. Um, whereas if your your story is, man, I'm having a hard time, there's a lot on my plate right now demanding my attention, I'm noticing that it's harder for me to plan or to, again, make wise food choices. So how can I begin with a much more compassionate perspective and say, how can I, as a busy person, um, work towards small changes that work for me in my life? Because if I try to do things in a way that works against myself, yeah, I'll, I will fail, quote unquote fail. Mm -hmm. um, but if I find ways that work for me, I'll very likely be successful. And so the circumstances can be exactly the same, but the story and the script around that can be significantly changed. I mean, here's, here's just one example. Let's say a client comes to me and they say, I have been on 50 diets in my life and I'm such a failure. My response to that might be, wow, you have tried at least 50 times to change things. Absolutely. And here, you're here for the 51st. Like you're, you still have hope. That's amazing and tremendous right? for sure. Like, wow, that shows your resilience and your persistence. You really want to solve this problem and you just haven't found the right way yet. So sometimes just reframing can be extremely powerful, but in general, I do like to lean towards a strengths focused perspective. And, you know, most of our strengths are the flip side of our weaknesses. So again, if you're busy and rushed and whatever, well, you're probably in roles in your life that are engaged and fulfilling and, you know, intellectually demanding and those kinds of things. You're probably not some, you know, lazy idiot lying on the couch, right? Yeah, you've got important things that are being, uh, need to be taken care of, right? Mm-hmm. Now that's, I mean, it's interesting as we started that discussion around, you know, your background and the skills that you learned in a certain area and bringing those around to help yourself uh, to be able to fulfill your roles at uh, Precision Nutrition. And just as you mentioned with clients, I mean, the skills that they have and all these other domains in their life, they can obviously reframe those and be able to use those in a really powerful way with their nutrition. And one thing that I, you know, in, in working as a personal trainer as well, full-time years ago, it was always amazing once you started to have a client two, three, four times a week, the amount of information that you were getting from clients was, you know, you really could understand their life and some of these limiting factors and their strengths. 
but there was also a lot of the emotional pieces as well. You know, you, you almost felt like you were a psychologist in, in, in understanding and learning all about these clients. And so, you know, how do practitioners, trainers start to navigate those waters when they're starting to get a lot of, you know, personal information or it's a lot of emotional, gut-wrenching type stuff that's coming out? You know, obviously an opportunity for change, but, but how can they start to direct that or help clients direct that into a positive way? That's a really great question, and you've definitely put your finger on a, a dynamic that is so key in many uh, trainer or coach client relationships. And I think that's something a lot of coaches really struggle with, like, where's the line, right? And I think we can almost think about it as a continuum. Um, and I think one end of the continuum is simply offering a presence that suggests, I care about you, I care about what happens to you, I empathize with your suffering, whatever you're going through. Um, I'm here on some level to understand and listen, maybe not fully, but you know, I'm going to be here and, and receptive and I'm going to try to get you and I'm going to offer compassion for what you're dealing with. And we're going to recognize that the self that you have in here in this coaching session, you know, is a very full self. You have other dimensions of your life that maybe you're grappling with. So, you know, one end of the continuum is just to bring that recognition into the coaching space I recognize that you're a complete human being. I recognize that sometimes you're suffering or dealing with difficult things or just you have other things going on besides this hour that we have together in the gym. Mm -hmm. That's kind of step number one. Step number two, which we talk about in our coaching certification, is using that information to understand your client, like really grasp their story and where are they coming from. So, geez, why isn't my client performing well in the gym? Well, uh, they just had a baby. And they're exhausted, right? Yeah, uh, so th- I mean, there's four hours a night. They're sleeping four hours a night, not like well. <laughs> totally, right? Stress so, the roof. Exactly. So we start to build a story and understand the layers of the client, which gives us a lot of insight into how to adapt their program or you know grasp what's happening. Oh no, they're they're not performing poorly because they're lazy. It's because they're exhausted, right? So that's another step along the continuum. And then I think a third step is, you know, when a client brings in issues that are clearly um, outside of your scope of practice, to be able to be kind of a bridge there for them between, you know, the conversations that you're having as a coach or trainer and other resources in their life that can help them. So sometimes, you know, people are not quite ready to um, seek out other mental health professionals, Mm -hmm. but a conversation with a coach or a trainer where the coach or trainer normalizes that kind of support and offers um, either like a direct referral or, you know, some kind of uh, bridging there between where the client is now and getting that support can be really, really helpful. So for example, um, we have a lot of clients that struggle with their alcohol use, for example. And so, you know, typically the way they'll frame it when they come in is, Oh, is my drinking interfering with my weight loss or is it interfering with my recovery? So you can have a conversation around alcohol use. Maybe it appears in their food journal. Maybe you can bring their awareness to it. One of the great roles for a trainer or coach is just to be a mirror, right? Mm-hmm. What are you noticing? What are you seeing in your food journal? Or, you know, I, I noticed that you had a lot of um, eating episodes in a week where you had a lot of work stress. I noticed that you drank a lot when you were having trouble with your boyfriend, right? So you can just point out the patterns Mm -hmm. and then you can kind of lead them to a place where you're like, listen, 
I think we're both at a place where we recognize that this is having an impact on the work that you and I are doing here together. I'm wondering if you're interested in, you know, dealing with that a little bit more with someone else. I can give you a referral or many of my clients have found that they get better results when they do X, Y, and Z. So, you know, there's lots of kind of ways that you can show up to that. But I think the thing that you really want to be careful with is not um, going outside your scope of practice. You are not a therapist unless you are. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So stay in the Very scope clear of practice. Lane. Totally, right? Um, you know, gently bring the client back into the boundaries. So sometimes, like, for example, I'll say, you know, and I'll kind of keep this lighthearted, but listen, uh, you know, Susan, um, you know, being a marriage counselor is a little outside my scope of practice, but I think it's definitely clear that your interaction with your husband is affecting the work that we're doing together. You know, uh, maybe we can just call that out and, and notice it. Um, maybe you want to deal with it. I don't know. But I think we can see the pattern here. And then just leave it. So you can kind of, you know, let them know uh, that we're going to we're going to color inside the lines here. Yeah. <laughs> but also that you've seen them and you've heard them and you've attempted to understand them. And you've noticed that there's patterns and you're going to call them out. But you're always going to link it back to the work that we are doing here in our space. Yeah, such a great point. I mean, that ability to kind of look back and observe, you know, whether it's in the training front, nutrition front and you know, you see clients all the time, you ask them if they're stressed, and of course they say no, and as you just mentioned, all of a sudden their red wine intake that week or two weeks goes through the roof, or their sugar intake goes through the roof, and it's like, well, wait a minute, I think we've got some proxies here that'll help us to to, to inform us if you're stressed or not, rather than just having to, uh, you know, that subjective um, answer that people have, because oftentimes people just want to feel like they're coping with stress, and so we often say, well, no, you know, I'm fine, I'm fine. Um, like you might get with a lot of type A's, but um, that yeah, that ability to reflect is is so key. And you know, if we keep this conversation rolling on, you know, low mood anxiety, these types of things are, you know, are prevalent or much more are on the rise and more prevalent today, whether through you know longer work weeks or um, things like social media and, and younger individuals and even in, in adults as well. All these different factors now that are ruminating and leading to increased rates of both anxiety and depression you know is that something that you guys see um at precision nutrition are there certain things on the exercise nutrition front again remaining in scope that that people might be able to start to look into to be able to support uh, mood yeah hugely um and and there's lots of ways to think about it i mean one of them is simply again to reflect back for clients Hey, listen, um, have you noticed correlations between your thoughts and feelings and your behaviors? Because as you say, often people don't even really notice how stressed they are. I certainly didn't. During the most, some of the most stressful times of my life, if you'd asked me, I would have said, oh, no, I'm fine. <laughs> I'm like, it's totally maybe like fine. a two out of ten. <laughs> you know, like, like you know, I'm bleeding out of my eyes or whatever. Yeah. Right? <laughs> um, so I think that a lot of people just have really poor insight on, uh, you know, what is occurring inside of them. Mm -hmm. And it will manifest in other ways, like muscle tightness, or it, again, you know, particular choices they might be making. So I think one of the pieces is just to bring their attention gently over and over and over to that pattern until they can start to feel it within themselves or notice, you know, the manifestations of it. And then I think, I mean, it's pretty clear that exercise 
does almost nothing but good for anxiety and depression, 100%. unless you are one of the people with an exercise compulsion and, you know, stuff tied into that, where if you, you know, don't exercise three times a day, you feel bad about yourself or whatever, right? So I think, you know, unless you are dealing with some kind of exercise compulsion or overtraining, in general, exercise is almost always a win for anxiety and depression. And what that looks like is different for different people. Like, so for example, some people just love yoga. Um, and they find it really helpful for anxiety in particular. Personally, I can't think of anything more anxiety inducing than having to sit still. My anxiety reliever and depression drug is martial arts. So for me, going somewhere and smashing something is, or just, you know, being really rough and tumble is much more relieving um, mm -hmm. than, you know, stillness, right? So I think you can encourage your clients to say, okay, notice how you feel after you do activity X, Y, or Z, and let's build a database of noticing which things kind of get you out of that experience of, of emotional distress. And there might be different things for different moods, right? Sometimes if you're feeling restless, one thing might be better. If you're feeling just completely down in the dumps and exhausted, you have that depression, you know, type where you just feel like a snail and peanut butter, mm -hmm. something else might work. So over time, again, you can bring your client's attention to that. But, you know, almost there's almost nothing that exercise doesn't make better, right? Um, I mean, things that are particularly good for anxiety and depression, um, either things, see, some people need to be calmed down and some people need to be amped up. So that's kind of the, the first fork in the road. Does your client need more energy or, or to dial it down? Um, getting outside, we know that's very beneficial for most mental health issues. Getting outside in nature, getting sunlight, um, even maybe being exposed to the bacteria, that are in outdoor environments with horses and dogs and animals and dirt and, you know, fungi and all that kind of stuff. Um, we, we think that might actually be beneficial as well. And then I think it might be helpful for you to come up with a plan with a client who may find that during low periods or anxious periods, they don't want to exercise, right? So with some clients, we might say, listen, let's come up with your plan for when you don't feel like doing this and your brain is telling you it's hopeless and sucky and all you want to do is lie down. Let's, let's have a battle plan for those moments and, you know, figure out a strategy for that. So there's lots of ways to play it. Um, and I think the point to emphasize is just to help people build a roster of go-to tools and techniques that work for them and, and give them results. I think one more piece, now that I'm thinking about it, yeah. is also to help people reinterpret the physiological manifestations of anxiety. Because a lot of the time, <laughs> we get anxious about being anxious. <laughs> and that's kind of, the, you know, one of the things that often leads to a panic attack is, you know, you're in a situation and you feel anxious and then you start freaking out because you're anxious, you feel the heart rate go up, you think, oh my God, I'm gonna die, I'm sweating, this is terrible. Well, that's what happens in exercise sessions, right? You're sweating, your heart rate goes up. So we can help give clients an experience of uh, an activated physiological state that actually feels good so that they can start to reinterpret, oh, no, no, I'm not, you know, going to die. I'm maybe excited or I'm revved up or I'm energized. We can give them different language around that. Sometimes that's very helpful as well. Yeah, that's terrific. I mean, that idea of having a game plan for when these things are going to go offside or off piste a little bit in terms of, you know, 
struggling with bouts of anxiety or those periods of low mood, like you mentioned, and just having that conversation to build that game plan is such a, a key um, takeaway there because I think oftentimes it's sort of left to, well, just you know, exercise and you'll feel better, which obviously, as you mentioned, and the research is pretty clear, is going to make have a big support for, for things like mood and anxiety. But having that little action plan for, for when things go off course is, is often something that gets overlooked and, and we, you know, clients are left to sort of navigate those waters on their own and it can get a little tricky as they start to maybe over-caffeinate to get that rev that we're talking about or, you know, the food choices start setting the, the blood glucose kind of up and down and spiraling around. And, um, but yeah, I mean, as we shift around talking about building plans and decision-making, I think, you know, for me, the conversation that's been interesting recently is around with, with parents and coaches with respect to sport, but, you know, with, with kids in terms of making decisions on training or nutrition and these types of things, you know, for yourself, when you, when dealing with children, you know, oftentimes we just think of kids as mini adults, whether it's in the gym or, or with some of the ways that we deliver information, you know, is that a prudent strategy? Is that an effective strategy, would you say? <laughs> well, it, it's funny because I actually think that most adults are actually just mini kids. So. <laughs> <laughs> you just swap. <laughs> Incorrect. Um, I know that when I was teaching university and so I was teaching undergrads. So, I mean, some of them would be in their early 20s. They loved kid things. Like I would bring in crayons and stickers and, and um, you know, when I ran out of stickers to put on their essays, they were like, where's, where's my sticker? On, I'm like, where's I my sticker? sticker. <laughs> So I actually believe that that adults are actually just little kids. And I mean, we talked about the the limbic system, right? I mean, we do have those moments when we get into a toddler tantrum or we get into teenage rebellion, like you can't tell me what to do, or we melt down because we need a juice box and a nap. (laughs) So, um, so, you know, it's super important for coaches and parents to understand that kids are not mini adults. I mean, Mm. developmentally, neurologically, we know that there's some really fundamental differences. And I think one of the big things to understand is kids' brains are in a process of organization, progressive organization. And so coherence in their brains is very fragile. It's very easily disrupted. And I mean, you can get a sense of this yourself, right? Uh, You know, be sleep deprived and stressed and on a transatlantic flight and then get off and discover that the airplane has lost your luggage. You will also melt down because your brain cannot compute this, right? So push yourself to your limits and you'll find out what it's like to be a toddler uh, who simply, whose brain simply cannot yet regulate itself or calm itself or make sense of things. So, for example, a lot of times um, adults will try to give children verbal instructions. Now, that's good from one perspective. I mean, it teaches them to process and um, abide by verbal instructions. So, I mean, it's good to practice, but understand that they're not, they cannot use language in the way that we can. So if I say to a five-year-old, why are you upset? I mean, sometimes they can tell you, which is cool, right? Yeah, that's a bonus. <laughs> just, you're just so scrambled neurologically at this stage that they can't because they're overwhelmed. It's like it just fries the circuits. So, you know, where possible with kids, the cueing has to be different, um, whether that's touch cueing, visual cueing, um, 
you know, anything that's not sort of like thinky brain, mm -hmm. left prefrontal cortex, um, adult way of thinking, kids also don't really grasp cause and effect in the way that we do. They certainly don't understand long-term consequences. The idea of even next week <laughs> is like super long time away. <laughs> Um, so they don't comprehend time, they don't comprehend risk and probability in the same way that we do. So basically none of the rules that govern adult thinking really necessarily apply to kids. The other piece is just how much kids need um, safety, security, and modeling of emotional regulation. So they need you as the adult to be self-regulated. So they need you to handle your stuff <laughs> so is, they can handle Which is often stuff. the hard part, right? That's you see that parent who's giving the verbal cues but doing it in such an aggressive way that all of a sudden the mirroring is, is the opposite of what you're after, right? That's exactly right. And I mean, this sounds terrible to anyone with kids. I don't, I don't mean to disparage kids, but it's like dogs, right? Like if, if the dog is barking and you're yelling at the dog, the dog's just going to bark more. The dog doesn't, you know, interpret, you know, shut up Fido as oh, <laughs> barking, right? It's like, yay, we're barking together. Yeah. So, you know, the kid will mirror, the kid will sense, um, the kid will emulate. And so, you know, you as the parent or the coach need to offer um, that regulated presence as well as, you know, that kind of unconditional safety, like, no matter what happens with us together, you're okay with me, right? I'm not going to abandon you. Um, I'm not going to leave you. You're okay with me. We're okay together. And whatever's happening here, we're going to sort it out. And, and that's huge uh, for kids, right? Their, their threat mechanisms are dialed way up. Um, and I guess the final piece is, you know, don't mistake quiet in kids for calm. Because a lot of parents, and, you know, I'm in this category, <laughs> um, like the screen is an automatic tranquilizer, mm -hmm. right? Like you're at the end of the day and you're just like, oh, my God, put this kid in front of Netflix for like an hour because I just can't deal, right? Just shut them up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I need some, um, some headspace. Totally, right? And the kid will just zone right out. And and it's funny, like when I talk to my seven-year-old when she's watching TV, she literally cannot hear me. I have to stop the TV and get in front of her line of vision, like break the <laughs> eye contact before she can process me. That right? sounds familiar. Um, <laughs> but 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 the, so when you give a kid a screen, they are quiet. They are anesthetized, but they are not calm inside mm. their brain is not calm they are you know the screen is not regulating and calming them so I think that's a very common mistake and then you know at the end of however many hours of tv the kid is still rangy and the parents like ah what is happening here uh, we actually had a meltdown this weekend and I blame myself I mean it was a rainy Sunday and I was like oh fine let's just put on the kids program you know, yeah. for a few hours put a movie on <laughs> Maybe on whatever, and at the end of it, like the ranginess and and the restlessness was so significant. And you know, in the moment, it was easy to say, like, "What's your problem? <laughs> Why are you being so cranky?" And I was like, "Oh, this one's on me, right? I put her brain in a place where it couldn't regulate." So, I mean, that's a little bit rambly there, but I guess the the main main take home is kids' brains are not adult brains; they don't play by the same rules. Yeah, I mean that's uh, that's terrific, and you know if I could pick your brain here, Krista, just bringing this up to sort of teenage athletes, and we'll think of you know more elite end athletes, and there's obviously conversations at the moment around you know 
coaches working with, let's say male coaches working with female athletes and sports where body composition and weighing is, is something that's um, typically done to be able to perform in that sport. And, and so there's lots of conversation around how best to sort of do this. And there's even, you know, and seeing some of the polls around this idea of, well, it should never be, it should, you know, this topic should never be addressed between a male coach and a female athlete, which obviously tricky if you're working in a sport that requires a, a weigh-in or whatnot. Um, you know, obviously a, a lot to navigate here, but, you know, it, for yourself, when you see situations like that or these conversations that start to come around, what are some things that sort of jump out for you or, or some areas that you'd want to, um, you know, address or know more about to be able to resolve this? I think one of the big ones is, you know, if you are a male coach who works with female athletes of any age, do the work to educate yourself, you know, understand at least the rudiments of reproductive endocrinology, you know, body image, social enculturation for girls, like get mm-hmm. familiar with all of the pieces of that, whether that's physical, mental, emotional, social, um, you know, understand that if you are a team uh, coach, you know, understand the dynamics between uh, the girls or the women on your team, you know, like what's playing out in the social dynamics, not just between you and your athletes, but among the athletes, mm-hmm. among the athletes in context, like if they're high school athletes, you know, how are they operating in the context of the whole school of their peer group, right? So really educate yourself about how things work, you know, um, you know what energy balance does in female bodies especially developing female bodies just kind of like you know do all that work for yourself first and then you know it's interesting because I think that a lot of male coaches just want to avoid the topic completely right so they opt for saying nothing and I don't I don't think that's necessarily a good path either so we don't want to be the coach that's like all right ladies get your fat asses on the scale right like we don't want to be that guy right but nor do we want to be the coach that says nothing for fear of saying the wrong thing. Mm -hmm. I would much rather see a male coach practice having those difficult, crucial conversations with the athletes, putting stuff on the table, you know, saying, listen, folks, this is a difficult topic for all of us for various reasons. You know, your sport demands a way in or your sport demands you to be a certain size for whatever right running Mm -hmm. economy or gymnastics or whatever so here's here's the playing field metaphorically that we're operating with it's gonna raise some stuff for you here's what we have to do in order to be competitive here's what's maybe going to come up for you as we do this you know let's keep that conversation going let's name the dynamics that could be occurring throughout this entire process i'm here to be supportive i'm here to support your athletic career um you know And let's keep talking about these dynamics that are occurring. So, you know, simply calling that out, I think, is actually a huge step forward for for male coaches, rather than pretending it doesn't exist at all, right? Yeah, I agree 100%. I mean, as you said, having that open environment, bringing these things up, educating yourself to the different parameters as best you can, or seeking out those who have, you know, more, more knowledge or qualifications in those areas, I mean... Yeah, it is a, a huge, uh, huge importance, and and like you said, we can't just you know coaches can't just put their heads in the sand to, to sort of avoid the topic because then at the end of the day the problem doesn't get solved either. So that's that's great advice, and you know if we circle all the way back, we talked we started the conversation here around you know all the different things that you guys see at Precision Nutrition, 
we talked about this environment that we're in and unfortunately uh, you know the environment in places like Canada the US the UK most uh, you know western countries is is one where ultra processed food is everywhere um what can clients start to do around environment or controlling their own environments or, or what are some things that you know you find yourself suggesting to clients to be able to you know either start to control it or be able to to stack the deck so to speak in their favor well i think the big one is helping is just educating right helping people understand that the role of their environment is huge like huge, right? And and you can help them understand that by talking about, you know, have you noticed that when you're in different environments, such and such happens, right? When you go to a social event, when you go to a buffet, you know, I mean, the buffet is a great example, right? You always eat more at a buffet because there's more variety. We love variety mm -hmm. and there's just all of it there, right? So, um, so you can talk to clients and give them examples of like, you know, do you notice yourself doing different things in different environments? When you go back to visit your family, you notice that you act differently. When you go on vacation, when you're here, when you're there, right? So, First, just educate people to understand environment is super powerful. And I think for a lot of people, sometimes that's demoralizing because they're like, oh, God, <laughs> now no, I have to no, change. No, I have nothing, nothing else to do. <laughs> <laughs> the industrialized world. <laughs> it's going to be a tall order. Totally, right? And I, but I think for most people, it's like, oh, okay, so if my environment can work against me or, or really strongly shape my choices, there's an upside here, which is that changing your environment can affect your choices. Mm -hmm. So knowing that, what can we do in our immediate environments to make small changes? Um, and we at Precision Nutrition do this thing we call the kitchen makeover, which is that you just make the food that you don't want to eat harder to get to or inconvenient, right? Like maybe it's frozen or it's out of the house or you have to go into the garage behind the hockey gear <laughs> to get <it> or something <laughs> good, like that, right? Or it's like on my shelf or, or, you know, whatever, right? And then you make the healthy stuff or the stuff that you do want as easy and convenient as possible. So you make, I like to say, you make laziness work for you, right? There you go. Um, and, and, you know, I, I have many clients who uh, have issues with evenings, evening snacking. And I'm like, okay, you know, I'll tell you what, um, don't keep your preferred snack food in the house, but tell yourself, I can totally have this if. I walk to the grocery store that's 20 minutes away and then I will go and get a single serving of whatever it is I like and I will enjoy it. Mm -hmm. um, but I will have had this kind of beneficial experience around it. So either they get a walk and they eat it, which is great. Right? <laughs> um, or they're like, eh, I know what, it's raining. I don't feel like going to get it. Right. So, so either way it's a win. Um, and then there's like little things like cues, right? Oh, you want to drink more water? Great. Uh, put a glass next to your bathroom sink and put a glass next to your kitchen sink. And every time you walk past a sink in your house, grab that glass, fill it up and drink it. So awesome. you can use this kind of shaping of like making good behaviors easier and making quote unquote bad behaviors or unwanted behaviors harder. And you can use the uh, the environmental cueing. And then there's things like, I mean, you know, people are always down on, on phones and how we're always on our phones. Well, make your phone work for you. If you're always on your phone, set phone reminders. Um, for example, most of us eat at the same time, more or less every day. Well, you know, 15 minutes beforehand or whatever, send yourself a reminder. Hey, buddy, remember to get some vegetables. <laughs> there you go. Or, you know, if you whoops, go out to a restaurant in your calendar, 
have your phone ping you as you're walking into the restaurant. Hey, man, remember to get a salad on the menu or whatever. Only one glass of wine, whatever it is you want to eat slowly. Um, So, you know, look around in your immediate environment. That can be your social environment. Kids go through this phase where they love to enforce rules, right? Like, Mm -hmm. I don't know if you have this in your household. My my seven-year-old is in this, like, um, swear jar phase. So every time one of us curses, it's like, that's a dollar for the swear jar. Uh (laughs) (laughs) I feel like as stress goes up, that one goes up for me. (laughs) (laughs) And then we've had some interesting debates about whether like frick is a swear word or fart is a swear (laughs) word. Anyway, um, you know, and so if you have a kid that's, that is at that age where they love to enforce rules, um, you know, recruit them. Say, listen, you know, every time you see mommy doing something, can you remind her that she's chosen to go do something else? Uh, or, you know, your partner, hey, listen, you know, we're going out to this restaurant. Can you help me do X, Y, and Z? So the people around you are as much a part of your environment as anything else. And I think, you know, that's one reason for the big success of, of things like CrossFit or group exercise. You know, when you go and move your body in an environment where other people are doing the same, um, it kind of reinforces that this is a thing to do. So your social environment can also be incredibly reinforcing and you can use that to your advantage. Yeah, it's, it's tremendous. And, you know, one of the stats that really jumps out for me was when I saw that, uh, you know, 50% of household spending in the UK was on ultra processed food. And, you know, if you hopped in a train and, and went to, to Paris for, you know, less than two hours, you know, all of a sudden it drops down to 14% of household spending. And so, you know, Italy's 13% and Spain down there around whatever, 15, 18%. And so all of a sudden these Mediterranean countries are like, wow, they just, everyone's just eating more real food. You know, I mean, it's, it can get to be that simple and, and that environment just pulling everyone in that direction. And so, you know, great, great advice there. And the one as well that I get actually with clients at their workplace, which, you know, you sort of touched on is just the frequency of cakes and cookies and someone's birthday and you're just I don't know if if, you know giving some talks you know the bigger banks and law firms down in Toronto I wasn't sure if it was an eight-year-old's birthday party or or, you know a work environment it's like what is going on here um so that can be tricky for 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 employees as well but I you know you see them sort of fighting back now which is great um in terms of trying to control that environment but I mean, that can, that can also be leveraged for good, right? Like you start a softball team or you have a Fitbit challenge where everyone mm-hmm. sinks their Fitbits and starts to game each other in the office, right? So like yeah. anywhere where there's a disadvantage, there's probably an advantage waiting to happen. Awesome. I love that, uh, being able to flip it like that. And um, So you talk about coaching for deep health. Could you uh, explain that and unpack that a little bit for listeners? Yeah. So in our most recent version of the certification, we really started advancing this model of deep health. And I mean, we're not the first people to talk about a multidimensional idea of health, but we really wanted our coaches to think about it because, you know, over the years, we were noticing that we would have clients who maybe had amazing physiques or were performing extremely well athletically, but, you know, in terms of their psychological health or their connection to other people, uh, you know, there was a lot of dysfunction there. And then eventually, of course, they would they would crash and burn. Um, and so we really started to think about, like, what is the intersecting dynamic? Like, what makes a person truly healthy and thriving in all aspects of their life? And we know from, from research, for example, there's some very interesting stuff, uh, for instance, on loneliness and social isolation 
and its relationship to mortality or chronic illness. And we know that if you feel lonely, so not if you're alone, but if you feel lonely, Mm -hmm. if you feel isolated and alienated and disconnected from other people, your rates of physical and mental illness go up and your rates of mortality go up. You're much more likely to die sooner. Um, The same is true if you feel like you don't have a sense of meaning in your life, you don't have a sense of purpose. Um, There's been interesting experiments where, you know, if you give people in a retirement home a job, a project, something to care for, like a cat or a parrot or even a plant (laughs) will actually do the job, apparently, uh, you know, they live longer. So, you know, I think this is very interesting. So, you know, we, we came up with this six dimension wheel of deep health. No, you can come up with as many dimensions as you like. The idea is that there's multiple intersecting dimensions. But Absolutely. so there's obviously the physical health dimension, right? What is your body, your biological body and processes doing? Uh, your mental health. Um, and there I put things like learning, memory, cognition, problem solving, um, you know, all that kind of stuff. Emotional health, your mood, your well-being, your emotional regulation, your social health. So how connected are you to other people? How fulfilling are your relationships? Your um, Now, some people, people call this different things. You might call it spiritual health. I call it existential health. But it's that sense of like, having a meaning and a purpose. It doesn't even have to be a big purpose. It can be like, again, you know, I'm keeping a house plant alive. Yeah. <laughs> it's an amazing right? plant. <laughs> Some sense of just having a job in the world and, and, and having a place in the world. And then the final piece is environmental health. And that can be, again, a more a metaphorical environment or like a literal physical environment. We know, you know, that, that many people, for example, low-income people live in neighborhoods with greater exposure to industrial toxins. So like it can be a very literal environmental health thing if you live in, you know, uh, play, you know, cities in China for example with huge levels of air pollution. Yeah, um, you totally know, so there can be very, Oh, totally, right? Uh, heat index, you know, uh, particulates in the air, hazardous chemicals if your job includes working with hazardous chemicals, mm-hmm. whatever, right? Um, so that's the multidimensional deep health concept. Now, I kind of went back and forth about whether sexual health should be in there. We decided to keep it G-rated for the audience. <laughs> <Nice>. <laughs> but I think that's a huge dimension of it as well, right? And I think that that kind of intersects with physical and relational. Um, but there's yep. lots of other dimensions of health that you could that you could come up with. But the point is, it goes so much further beyond like what are your cells doing? It really tries to say, who are you as a whole human being with all these aspects of yourself in the world and in relation to other people? And how does that affect your overall experience of health? And how do the dimensions affect one another, right? Mm -hmm. Could we improve, for example, your physical health by giving you a sense of purpose or giving you better relationships Uh, You know, so can we improve one dimension by improving the others? Or how can we as coaches make sure that we don't prioritize one at the expense of another? I mean, so this goes back to our discussion about coaches and female athletes. Like, is there a way that I can forestall, you know, issues with uh, athletes and body image and disordered eating by creating an incredible team camaraderie? Can I boost the social health of this team or the existential health um, and in so doing boost the physical health? 
So there's lots of ways to play this game. But again, the main piece is that there's these multiple dimensions that all um, connect with each other and play with each other in creating a complete and complex human being. Yeah, it is fascinating. These the deep interconnections, as you mentioned, the push and pull of all these areas and how they're all speaking to each other simultaneously and how community or on the flip side, loneliness can really start to leverage these various areas of health. And, you know, it is just fascinating how that holistic view is, is just so crucial with a lot of the chronic um, conditions and just in terms of human health for us as complex as it is. And um, Chris, listen, I really appreciate you carving out so much time today. Um, this was fantastic. Obviously, people want to get you know more information, keep up with what you're doing as well. Where's the best place for them to go? Well, uh, one of the first places I would start is precisionnutrition.com. There's tons of free stuff there. Like just you know, go and read until your eyeballs fall out. <laughs> nice. um, if you if you look for me on Facebook, you will find me uh and instagram i'm at stumptuous s-t-u-m-p-t-u-o-u-s and that's also the name of my website stumptuous.com i'm not on there much it's uh it's literally almost 20 years old i think it's over 20 years old now my website um (laughs) i fired it up in like the mid 90s so (laughs) (laughs) it's very old school but um but yeah so i mean in any of those places if you look for me you'll find me i mean you'll find you'll find me even on amazon there's a my my recent book is on Amazon, so you'll find that too. So I'm in lots of different places, and uh, if you look, you will find. Fantastic. Well, we'll definitely include those links, and again, really appreciate you carving out some time. Always learn uh, a lot uh, either reading your work or getting a chance to talk to you, so thanks so much for taking the time. Thank you for listening to the Dr. Bose Performance Podcast. If you enjoy the content, please consider subscribing on iTunes, YouTube, or your favorite podcasting platform show your support and it's also a tremendous help to the show and helps us to continue to attract high quality guests if you haven't heard my new book peak the new science of athletic performance that is revolutionizing sports is out and i'm pleased to announce we actually hit the amazon bestseller list in canada and in the u.s in the sports medicine physical medicine and rehab and holistic medicine categories so you can find out more info on that and the expert insights athleteevolution.org athleteevolution.org and of course you can pick up a copy on Amazon, Barnes & Noble Chapters Indigo, Waterstones or your local book sellers Awesome, if you have any questions or want to leave a comment on today's episode you can reach out on Facebook Instagram or Twitter at DrBubs and thanks again folks for listening and we'll see you all next week with more expert insights The Dr. Bub's Performance Podcast endeavors to provide accurate and helpful information to listeners. These podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Dr. Bub's Performance Podcasts.